1: Plushcare. dot com slash weight loss.
2: This is somewhere in the skies with Ryan Spurg.
0: Brian Spreg here from somewhere in the skies. And I am coming to you from a undisclosed location uh, for top secret reasons. Uh, but I am making this interview happen tonight because I've been waiting for a while to talk to this gentleman. Now, I first heard about him through the television show Unidentified, which aired in the U.S. on the History Channel. It aired here in the U.K. on Sky TV. As well. And it was part of one of the, I would say, uh, most explosive, uh, two episodes of Unidentified. Actually, this gentleman was in two different episodes uh, about, uh, UFO events that happened over nuclear installations, a topic that we have covered here in the past, but, uh, not as in depth as we will tonight. Uh, I, as you guys know, I'm all about the human side. Of UFO experiences. And ever since I saw this gentleman on the television show and uh, have seen him in past interviews, it's very clear that this event has affected him greatly, like it has many other military personnel and civilians as well. So we're going to talk all about the event that happened to him at Ellsworth Air Force Base in 1977. But without further ado, let's bring him in to talk all about the event that happened to him at Ellsworth Air Force Base. And that is none other than Mario Woods. Mario, welcome to Somewhere in the Skies.
1: Hello, Ryan. Thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely. You know, we have been trying to make this happen for a while (laughs) now. We've been emailing back and forth for, I'd (laughs) say, a little under a year now. Yeah. And uh, we finally made it happen. So we're going to make it worth it tonight, for sure. We're good.
1: I'm looking forward to it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, for those who may not uh, be familiar with the show unidentified. Uh, I know you did another special on discovery plus sort of recently as well. Um, can you tell us a little about who you are? Uh, you know, we'll get to the military career aspect, but, um, yeah, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to our audience who may not be familiar with you if you don't mind.
1: Okay. Well, my name's Mario Woods. I'm 67 years old. Uh, live in Brunswick, Georgia. Um, I work for a paper company now, Georgia Pacific. Uh, My hobbies are radio control car racing, tactical shooting, uh, physical fitness, um, just taking care of my property and just doing everything I can to uh, continue onward in this journey. Right. Right. Well, I I don't know how far you want me to expound on that or anything or just is that good enough? (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh, no, no, no. That's that's perfect, man. The journey is um, is definitely what we're going to be talking yeah. about tonight. Um, well, let's start with uh, your journey into the military. What made you what compelled you to want to join the Air Force, if you don't mind?
1: Uh, well, honestly, I I, uh, I just always had a thing about aircraft and airplanes, but uh, living in Tampa, Florida for as long as we did, you know, used to always see the launches from NASA across the state, you know, in Cocoa Beach. And um, it just always, you know, it just always enthused me, you know, aerial, you know, superiority, that kind of thing, and rockets and missiles and stuff like that. But um, uh, my father was a merchant seaman and lost him um, my first day of my senior high school year. So I should have probably gone to the Navy. And uh, instead, I just didn't want anything to have have to do with the sea any longer. So. Uh, even though I used to go to sea with him sometimes, I uh, so I decided to go in the Air Force, and I went into security police, and uh, went on the security side of it, which was kind of like the security forces as if, as is today, and uh, went through all the training. We did even did some ranger training down in um, the Philippines and so forth. That that was like seventy nine, um, when they were trying to integrate Air Force into into better modes and more secure. Um, Modules of training, so it it gave us a better better leg to stand on. Uh, But it's you know I I don't regret the journey. It was really really great, and I'd do it again today if they'd have me.
0: Gotcha. Well, I guess what what was 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 your first station stationing at Ellsworth Air Force Base? Oh yeah. Or had you worked
1: after basic after basic training and technical school? Right. Um, Air Base Ground Defense Training. Yeah, that was my first base was Ellsworth Air Force Base. And uh, it was really different. You know, here, you know, here I am, a uh, you know, 18 year old from Tampa, Florida. And um, all of a sudden I'm in a missile complex in the middle of nowhere in South Dakota. So it was really different, but really eye opening, not really knowing what the global threat was only, you know, as a student hearing about it, you know, the Cold War or what have you and, then all of a sudden you're thrust into the middle of it where you you know there were times where I got to actually go down inside of a silo to put my hands on the on a missile, you know, and just think, wow, I wanted to write something on it, but that's a federal offense. So <laughs> you can't do it, you know, but but uh I I uh I learned a great deal there. Wow.
0: I can't even imagine, you know, the the pressure that you and so many of the people on base had to deal with Day-to-day. And first of all, thank you for your service before we go any further. Um, My first question would be, what does the typical day of a security police officer look like at a base like Ellsworth? I'm sure it would change day-to-day, but yeah, yeah, what was kind of the protocol of a day-to-day there?
1: uh, First of all, you know, even though Ellsworth was where you were assigned, that's just your support base. And these missile sites are, you know, are spread throughout the northwestern side of South Dakota, as in Montana, as in Wyoming, as, as in um, North Dakota. And uh, anyway, our base had 150 missiles, as the other bases did also. And then you live on these launch control facilities for three days at a time. Then you're off for three days. and uh, But you live there, and you, your hours rotate per shift or per tour of duty, we used to call it. We're like 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. And there, you know, staffing wise on a launch control facility, you have six security police officers, uh, four of which are response personnel, two are flight security controllers. You have a facility manager, a, a cook, and you have four officers there, and two of which are underground at all times, You're manning the capsule, the launch control capsule. So, and then you monitor based on their on their dispatches, uh, you know, and you do LF checks, launch facility checks to. Uh, any and all missile sites and of course address any and all, uh, security related, uh, alarms that go off and they do go off.
0: Hmm. So in terms of going off now, we're going to get to the main event that we <laughs> will be the crux of the conversation tonight. But, um, had you, en- had you ever had any other incidents occur, um, non UFO related on the base during your time there?
1: Uh, not on the base. No. Um, I mean, of course, you hear you're hearsay. My, my first experience of anything that flying, which was uh, my with my mother and my sister, um, was in Port Arthur, Texas, being taken to my elementary school, Queen Elementary, where my mother pointed out, along with about fifteen hundred other people, I'd say, well, maybe not that many, maybe eight hundred, mm-hmm. all the kids in the playground, all the teachers hanging out out of windows. It was a one. Uh, it was a, it was a building where you went to school from kindergarten to 12th grade. And, uh, I'd say that was probably right around 61, 66, yeah, 61, 62. I was just, that was my first year and, or going to school in kindergarten or first grade. I can't quite remember, but there were three objects sitting over top of a church, only about 50 feet in the air. And they were in a white silver and had a lower, uh, circula- circulating light And my mother pointed them out. She said, Look, Anthony, there's flying saucers. That's my middle name. And we were just so astonished. All the cars in front of us were stopped, which was probably six or eight cars. And then the playground area, which was directly across the street from the school itself, was fenced off. So it was an entire playground area. It's still there today. I saw it just in back in 08. And um, I just stood there and thought about that. The church is no longer there and the school's been redesigned, but that morning was really, really unbelievable because we just couldn't believe what we saw and how fast they vanished straight up, all three. Same time, you know, they were probably 75, 80 foot in diameter. I mean, this is a five, six-year-old kid telling you this. So I don't know if it leaves much room for imagination when you've never seen something like that before. So it's pretty much was pretty factual, exactly what we saw. And, you know, and once they were gone, this is the weirdest thing. Robert Hastings even said this to me that a lot of times, you know, people witness something and as soon as it's gone, it's like, okay, it's all normal. It's okay. And that's the way that day went exactly the way it went.
0: (laughs) Interesting. You do hear that a lot, you know, particularly, uh, I did a investigation recently for a TV show on the Phoenix lights incident. Oh yeah. And, uh, a lot of those witnesses claimed the same thing after what they saw, they, it was like something in their brain just, yeah shut down and they didn't want to talk about it or they had some sort of like instant amnesia or there was something that just compelled them to uh move on and, and not yeah. react to what had yeah. just occurred. Um it's fascinating. I, I do wonder often, you know, is that some sort of as Jacques Vallée would say, a control mechanism of the craft so. you're actually seeing or what? Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. I, I really I really think so. I, I do. Uh, I spoke with one uh, guy out there and I, I don't I don't want his name mentioned or anything, but by email. And he said, you know, he witnessed that and he was there and he had some pictures. I tried to get him to send me the pictures, but he didn't want to send me pictures over the internet. You know, how people are strange yeah. about that. But anyway, he said, they were having a party in his backyard and um, uh, I don't know, birthday party or something for his daughter. And then, and that happened and, Why he elected to tell me about that, I don't know. He had seen one of the one of the uh, podcasts, I think, with someone and um, he just thought my email was there and he thought he would get in touch with me. And he did. But he said it was as if, okay, it's over. Everybody goes back to the party. Nobody even discussed it, which I found extremely strange. But that's the way it is.
0: Yeah, right. I know I've come across hundreds of those. At this point. And uh, speaking of emails, you're probably going to get a bunch after this interview. I'm already it. warning you.
1: <laughs> I try to answer everybody I can. You know, I, I have nothing to hide. I have uh, I'm too old to worry about any of this other mess. I don't have any clearances any longer. So, you know, you can ask anything you want.
0: Well, we appreciate that. Yeah. So, you know, um, the more military personnel that come forward, I think it really um elevates the conversation. It does make people stop and listen. You know, you are trained observers. Your your jobs are literally to look for threats at these installations and they're happening at an alarming rate and yes. and they cannot be explained. So um let's I, I guess let's just dive into it. You know, let's rip the band-aid off Mario. Um this <laughs> event that happened to you um 1977 Ellsworth Air Force Base, I want to give you the time to just tell it as you'd like. You know, I know okay. you've done it before, but um this is your time to kind of just uh run us through it, you know from right. I guess start right. to finish uh there's kind of a tangential aspect to your story uh in terms of the missing time, which I'd like to cover separately if that's okay with you sure um but yeah, maybe just run us through what happened in nineteen seventy seven at the base.
1: Okay. Um, well, first of all, I, it was our first day out, uh, being taken from the main base of Ellsworth out to November one, which is where I was assigned at the time. And, um, I was working with a new partner named Michael Johnson and he was working vacation relief, uh, for my normal partner. And being that he outranked me, he was the team leader by like two months. So anyway, it was nice to meet him and a real nice fellow. And, uh, I believe he said he said he was from uh, Chicago, Illinois, but I, I, I'm not positive. Mm-hmm. Hopefully um, we'll make contact with him in the future. And we're, we've been trying for years. Uh, anyhow, it was uh, maybe 915, 920 at night. I just stepped outside. Uh, you know, this, this site is in the middle of a prairie. The closest town is Newell, South Dakota, and it's about eight and a half miles away to the south. And so more south of that is um, Sturgis, which many people are familiar with. Yeah, and that's a that's a launch control facility right there where we lived. That looks like November one. Of course, they all look alike. I hope it is <laughs> November one.
0: I believe it is. If uh, I did my research,
1: is. yeah. <laughs> and uh, I was out there last year in September, which was or no July, which was really cool. Maybe before that, but anyway. Um, So I walked out in the front of this, this building and, uh, which is just standing outside. And the only town North of that is Belle about 29 miles to the North. And then you have the North Dakota state border on beyond that. But, uh, anyway, over to the East, which would be to the right side of this picture. I stepped out in the parking lot to smoke a cigarette and just to stretch my legs. I smoked then. And I saw an object at about a 30 degree elevation in the sky And I was kind of confused by it because it was so large and it was so bright, but it was a different intensity of light that I've ever seen before. I honestly thought it was two B-52 bombers, which we supported a strategic bomber squadron at Ellsworth Air Force Base. They're already ready to go. I mean, that's what they do. And that's what Ellsworth was, that in missiles. And I honestly thought that's what they were because sometimes they'll fly these sorties, you know, where they're, They're training flights, but they get really, really low, like three, four hundred feet off the ground and they're just ripping. And, you know, I mean, they have some really big lights on. them. I've never seen that kind of light, but that's what I thought they were. Maybe they were in tandem behind each other or something. It was so strange that it kept my attention. The other thing was I didn't know if it was coming directly toward me or moving. It wasn't moving away from me. So I I really couldn't see that it wasn't stationary. Even that's why I thought it was coming toward me and I couldn't really detect that, you know, visually. And I'd say it was probably, you know, seven, eight miles away, maybe more. Uh, but it was very large <laughs> in relationship to large. I'd say uh, it's like looking at a quarter of a moon uh, diameter of a moon or something, you know. But yeah, it was bright like that. And um, anyway, I don't even know what came over me. It was up there. For such a period of time, I thought, well, I'll just try what they do at sea. My, you know, my father taught me and showed me how they used to use the ship's lights to, you know, to flash other lights, uh, other ships for communication. Mm-hmm. So I ran inside my buddy, Bill Holloman. He was on the phone. He was talking to his wife and, um, uh, back at Ellsworth. And, uh, I said, Bill, there's something out here that I would l- wish you'd take a look at. And he just kind of waved me off and, uh, so I just walked up to the panel and it was just one switch control, 12 to 14 lights around the facility. And they were all these two foot diameter can lights, you know, that illuminate the uh, perimeter and the building. And I flipped them off, flipped them on. No, no sequence, no SOS or anything like that. Just for fun. Just flip, 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 flip. I went back outside and it flipped so It flipped off and flipped back on. Now, wow. Yeah. And I went, well, that's different. You know, immediately then I thought helicopters, you know, because there's a lot of times you know, we had helicopters doing trips that come out to the sites or to to LCS or to the LS dropping off people or bringing a maintenance team or something, emergency configuration or anything. But anyway, so I ran back inside excited. And as I went back in, I told um, Michael Johnson, my my uh, team leader at the time, I said, hey, Michael, come on here and check this out, man. I said, I flipped lights at this object at this thing, and it flipped the lights back. He didn't even really pay any mind to me. And uh, he was watching the TV on our three channels that we had there in 77. So you can imagine with them much TV. But so I did it again and went back outside and uh, it went off and came back on. And I thought, <laughs> what? what is this, you know? And when it went back off, it moved. And I, and I couldn't, I didn't know that at the time. So I got, I got Michael Johnson. I said, you got to come out here and see this. So he came outside and he sees the light or he sees it, the object, the light. And it had moved a little bit further North, but I think it had gotten a little bit closer at, compared to where it was. And, uh, so I went back inside again. I said, hold on a minute. And I flashed the lights at it and again, same sequence ran back outside, nothing happened. All of a sudden it went off and it didn't come back on. So that was three times. And now it was about five minutes or so to 10. And he just said, you know, like whatever, you know, he didn't really make a comment or anything. And as I said, we didn't really know each other. So, you know, I'm, I'm inquisitive anyway. And, uh, it just, it just seemed that really sparked my interest for some reason. Yeah. And, uh, Anyway, I like flying on helicopters. And I thought, well, that's really a new ploy there with these helicopters. They're doing that. <laughs> so uh, anyway, go back inside. And I said, well, I guess the show's over. And uh, went back inside, sat down, picked up a book or something, started reading it and uh, watching some TV. Remember, it used to go off at midnight and you'd get those really strange characters and everything on your TV. And uh, So I guess it was about 12... 30 somewhere right in that time and the uh the mcc phone or lcc phone went off in the flight security controller's office and it's a direct line between the flight security controller and the missile combat crew down below and uh when it went off it just it it's a phone that you it doesn't ring like a normal phone it just says answer me now you can't it won't stop until you pick it up so you have to pick it up and uh anyway i heard um the officer there telling, um, Bill Holloman, I, he's a sit four at November five. And I thought, well, that's weird. We hardly ever got those. That was an outer and inner zone alarm. And, uh, they're, they're different, you know, than, than the standard thing. We go out when there's a bird or something flying through the antenna array or something like that. So anyway, we got our briefing and everything from the uh, capsule crew and whenever it's that level of alarm, uh, back at Ellsworth, uh, you, you have the communication center there that, uh, that really oversees SWSC wing security control. They're like, they like monitor any and all alarms going on or anything on base too. So they have a dual purpose, but anyway, they were aware of it. And they, they of course gave us a safety briefing as well. So we, uh, got all of our stuff together and our codes and our weapons and, loaded up everything. And it was about nine to 13 degrees outside. And, uh, yeah, we had F one fifty four pickup trucks and they were just two wheel drive trucks. And, uh, we had, of course we had a front end loader, a Caterpillar front end loader on the site in case, you know, we needed to dig out of there, which did happen a few times, but, uh, not all the time, but anyway. Um, so we responded, uh, after our safety briefing and our, and everything, our travel time was probably about 12 to 14 minutes from, November one to November five, and uh, so we got in the vehicle and he's operating the vehicle. He's the driver, and we pull out of the gate, go down to the first intersection. Which all these are clay roads out there that that um, are just as they're some better than highway roads. You know, I mean they they really maintain the roads and uh, these clay roads. So we take a take a left, go to the next intersection, a left, and go up the highway seventy nine, which is about four and a half miles away. And as you're traveling 70, as you're traveling the dirt road or the clay road up to highway 79, the road beds are elevated for snow runoff and water and what have you. And, uh, and mind you, you know, you're at a mile high. This is, this is nothing but pure prairie land there. And uh, so as we rolled up to 79, I just looked over to my right uh, which would have been about the four o'clock position now, as we rolled up on the highway. And as I, as we did, I look to my right and I see this really strange glow, miles away, but from that area on November five. And I thought, you got to be kidding me! How strange is that? You know, you 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 know what's going on out in these by these missile sites normally because you you traverse them so much, you check them so often. Mm-hmm. And as soon as we made that that right turn on the highway seventy nine, which goes downhill toward Newell, I told Michael, I said, "Dude, I said." <laughs> Just like that, I said, that's that object sitting on November 5. And he just says, oh, whatever, man. He didn't, he just, it just went right over him. He didn't believe me. So from that four o'clock position, it now moved to about the two o'clock position visually. And it was just pulsating. Well, the further we went down toward Newell, it was downhill. So I lost the sight of that pulsation. And we came to the stop sign in Newell on Ormond Road, still there today. And there's one stop sign. And there's one stoplight in Newell, and the stoplight's straight ahead. And You take a right on Ormond Road toward November 5. And um, population today, 624 or something. Population then was 234 in oh, wow. 1977. Yeah. So it's a real small town, but it's really nice people there. And uh, so we turn right. And as we went out, it was paved road, and about a mile and a half into it, it drops back off on the clay. But at dog legs to the left, which is important. I really couldn't see it until then, but we dropped off of that pavement and back onto the dirt and it went to the left and there sat this object on top of November 5 that dwarfed the site. 10 feet in the air, no noise, no hard edges, no protrusions, no engines, nothing that I can even explain aeronautically how it could be doing what it's doing. And we pulled up directly in front of that site and that object, probably, uh, the, I guess, the cattle gate, wh- which ranchers have to keep their cows from from coming out onto the highway to the roads. Uh, that's where we stopped at a 45-degree angle, which was a tactical position for the pickup truck. So uh, it's laughable today, but uh, that's what we did then. But uh, this object was so large that if you can picture a ball over a square area the diameter of it was so large really that the the pickup truck was somewhat not covered by it but the edges of the uh, edges of that diameter were just not far away at all just 50 so feet i guess i don't know i mean it was just so large you couldn't see the top wow. of it obviously mm-hmm. You know, from far away, you could see the top or the full circumference of it, but underneath it, you couldn't. And um, I don't know what came over me, but it seemed as if I looked at Michael Johnson and he was like in some kind of a, he was bathed in some kind of a light, like a bluish glow, bluish white glow behind him. And he was on the steering wheel just like this, just stuck to that steering wheel. And I, for some reason I knew that we had, we needed help. And, uh, you know, we're in full parkas, flat pants, mittens. I had my, had my mittens on. I had one on and the other one off. And, uh, anyway, the only thing I knew to do, I had to ask for relief. We couldn't breathe. It was as if the interior of that vehicle is being vacuumed out and we were in it. And, uh, I can smell the air. <clears throat> Every time I talk about this thing, I can smell the air right now. Someone is like electrified or something uh, uh, like ionized. I don't know what else to say about that. But anyway, I we had those old Western mirrors on these on these vehicles, those big aluminum mirrors. And so I with my mitten off on my right hand, I pull myself out up onto the windowsill. Now, you know, I'm 22 years old and I'm in some of the best shape of my life. And why I didn't get out, I was literally afraid, and my partner wouldn't say anything. And I pulled myself out onto that windowsill and I took my mag light and I held onto the bubble with my right mitten, my left mitten, and I flashed this thing. I just flashed my mag light at it. Just now, what what difference or what really did that mean? That little that D cell mag light to this object that's size of a Walmart building. Uh, I flashed that light uh, in no sequence again, three or four times. And, it, and I slither, slithered back down in that seat. And I put my M16 between my legs. And I just remember putting my head down. And all of a sudden I could breathe again. Just, just that way I could breathe again, but it was labored, but I could breathe. And it, it seemed as if tunnel vision came upon me and I was just I was just going in like this. And as I did, I turned to my right. I felt such fear to my right, because all you have is a piece of glass, right? Yeah. I rolled the window up. <laughs> and as I did, I see these shadowy figures on my right side approaching me. And what got my attention was um, in the midsection of the one of the one being, and they're not creatures, they're beings. And these these are beings. This is no they that there are beings. There was something in the waistband or some kind of a band that had a, a, a yellowish glowing tip on it. And then the tall, there was a tall one. It was four total. The tall one in the back was substantially taller and had a different feature. Now, I couldn't see it real clear. I mean, it, I, I don't know how to describe this kind of vision, but, the three in the front looked identical, or their shadows were the same, or their the way they looked were the same. But the one in the back, he had this thing right here on his chest, but it was at a really strange shape, and it glowed, and it stuck out. It wasn't just in him; I mean, it stuck out. And then I closed my eyes. I guess I, I everything just went black. Um. I don't know what happened to Michael Johnson. I don't know if anything was on that side of the vehicle or he saw anything. He never indicated that he did. He never, he never spoke. The last time that he spoke during all of this up to this point was when he said, whatever, man, up on Highway 79 when we first arrived on 79. I don't remember the radio going off or anything like that. And just as that happened, I opened my eyes and I'm in total blackness. It was as if you walk into a, um, I don't know, I, I don't know, I, just total blackness. And uh, I was trying to gather myself as to really what happened and where I was I and just everything about me and just being, I guess. And uh, I reached down and I popped the door open and I stepped out. And when I stepped out, that my vision started to come to me. And, uh, I had on bunny boots, which are an inflatable, uh, boot that you use in winter time to keep your feet warm, especially in temperatures, you know, well below zero and you use them on aircraft carriers. It's a, it's a issued item. Anyway, I stepped out in mud and I couldn't figure out, well, the ground's frozen it has been, you know, below freezing for what a week and a half or something, two weeks. I don't really know. And, uh. It was just very strange to step out in mud. And now, look as I looked, all of a sudden this white wall comes into focus. It wasn't a wall like straight up and down, you know, like the ground, and then straight up and down. It was at an angle. And as I as I looked to my right, which would have been I would have been looking north, it was as far as I could see. When I looked the opposite direction to the south, it was as far as I could see. I still didn't know where that was. And all of a sudden the radio cracked to life. And I just kind of looked over, just shaking my hand. I I said, where's November five? And then I said, Michael, are you going to get that? He didn't answer me. He was locked onto that steering wheel like he was paralyzed on that steering wheel. And his eyes were just huge. His eye, he was breathing. Uh but he had nothing coming out of him as far as talking. He he just, he wouldn't even, he wouldn't even utter. I mean, he would, nothing. I couldn't get anything out of him. I moved him. I pushed him. I did everything I could do to try to, Hey man, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? And uh, I couldn't get anything out of him. I answered the radio and I, and I, I was a senior airman at the time, you know, uh, called WSC was calling us and, I said, um, Senior Airman Woods, I said, it's November 1. I said, uh, go ahead, CSC, like that. And uh, they said, what's your location? And I just said, sir, I don't know. And um, I said, my team leader, I said, he, he is not responding. He, they asked me if he's conscious. And I said, yes, eyes are wide open. And, um, you know, we went through that for a second. He goes, I need you to do one minute security checks with me until we find you. We're triangulating, uh, you know, your location. And, uh, of course, I, I wasn't familiar with that. I'd heard about it in, in you know, in, in training, you know, uh, in security police, but I'd never done it before. And like I said, I was just 22 years old. But anyway, so they were looking for us. So I did just what he said. In the meantime, I tried to wake up. Michael Johnson is still trying to figure out where we were, why I wasn't standing in this mud, which I had gone around the vehicle now, and the vehicle was pointing uh, to the south, and what was strange w- was that just outside that driver's side door, maybe four feet directly away from it was a great big downhill into another lake or something. I didn't know where we were to start with, but it was a big, huge lake, but it was frozen. And I thought, what are we, how do we get here? What are we doing here? And, uh, so I kept doing the security checks and, uh, finally, um, uh, I, I, I see these lights come over the horizon, how they found us. I still don't know how to do all that today, but, uh, there was a Sergeant Garza that approached me and, uh, that approached us first and there were two other vehicles. So they had three backup alert teams looking for us. And so that's six security policemen. And, um, anyway, as he, as he pulled up, he pulled maybe 20 yards from where we were located. And he got out and he walked through the lights and I saw him coming. And, uh, our our lights, I can't even. Our lights were off. I mean, I, I my, our vehicle was off, and um, I said, "Hey, Sergeant Gars, I said, "What's going on?" You know, I mean, you almost make you feel like you've done something wrong. That's 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 what they always try to do to make you you did something wrong. Mm-hmm. Well, I knew something was wrong because I am sure didn't go. I didn't strike that site as I was supposed to, and it was a set four, which was a serious alarm. Strike means respond and find out what the cause was. I never got to go on the side. I never left the vehicle. And um, my job was to go onto the facility, do an internal, you know, patrol around the inside of the fence, go, go down below ground in a soft support building and see if anybody's there or what happened. But the alarm was in another plug that goes down to the missile, uh, which we don't have. We have access to just one part of it. Nobody has access to all of it. And anyway, he approached me. He said, "Mario," he says, "I'm." He goes, "He just sit there." He said, "I can't talk to you about it. We're going. We're here to take you back to November one." I said, "Oh, oh, okay." I said, "Well, man," I said, "I, I don't even know what happened." He said, "He wouldn't. Even, he wouldn't even say anything." <laughs> so, uh, and at this point, this is where unidentified said they relieved us of our weapons. That never happened. They never took our weapons. And I, I find that as an insult, <laughs> to be honest with you, you know. Um, but I guess that's production of some kind that I didn't agree with. Should have asked me that first. But
0: That's um, TV, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's just <laughs> bull or crap, man. But I, uh, and that, that, never mind, I won't say any more. But anyway, um, I asked him, I said, I need some help with Michael Johnson. I said, I don't know, he's in a catatonic state. And I didn't even know what the word truly meant back then, but I do now. And we unbelted him. We just we didn't have shoulder harnesses. We just had seat belts at that time in '77. And these F-150 boards slid him over to the passenger side, belted him back in, got in the vehicle. And I, to this day, I, I didn't know exactly where we were, you know. And uh, at that time, and about 15 minutes later, we pulled up November one. And we were driving through areas that I just I didn't even know about, you know, and, and that was part of my area. And I've just never been in it before. There's no missile sites where we were. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And uh, so we get to November one and there the flight chief, the assistant flight chief and others are there. Uh, questioning us and I immediately had to have help with Michael Johnson. Well, they immediately separated us and um, the off duty capsule crew. They were upstairs. And they were assisting and talking, trying to talk to Michael Johnson. And they took they took me into the day room, took him in the back bedroom because he was non responsive verbally. I mean, they just he would walk, but they just led him to where they he was going. I remember watching him walk through the gal through the uh, uh, kitchen area, you know, where our dining area, and back into the back hallway. And uh, so I sat down, and they started asking me questions. And I, you know, and I said, "Well, I said that object that I saw." last night. I said, that's what was that was at November five. I don't remember saying that. And um, of course that went right over everybody's heads. You know, the only person that really knew about it was, um, was uh, Bill Holloman and he was in flight security controller and he didn't come out and see it. But anyway, so they started asking me questions. I answered questions for probably 20, 30 minutes. My flight chief was there. The assistant flight chief was back with Michael and I just told them everything that I saw and what I experienced, and then you know what I did with the lights and how I did that and and never responded to the never went on to the site as I was supposed to, which had to create a problem that had to be that had to be a problem, so they had they had to go find out what caused that at that facility to right. somewhere else, and I never found out who did it. Somebody had to go strike that site and um so I just had to get away from, I just, I just said, Hey, I, I need to go to the restroom. And I didn't, I just, I just needed to get away from everybody for a minute. Cause they were just pounding me with questions and, and I, I couldn't think fast enough. And I was just, I was just just dis, in disarray. I think I, I wasn't myself. And um, I went into the restroom, which was surely strange because I, uh, I was, I went, in, I went in this one stall. It was two stalls in this restroom and I was just out there and I couldn't believe it. The first thing I did when I got to the site was I went in that stall. I went, well, it's all torn up right now, but I, I just had to walk in that bathroom. Cause I mean, that was a really strange time, but I went in there and sat down on top of the toilet, just sat there fully uniformed, everything. And, uh, just held my head in my hands. And all of a sudden, um, I felt as if I was leaving my body. And I was leaving it going going I thought I was dying, I guess. And um I went I was going out the top of my head, down through my stomach and out of my feet. Literally. I mean I knew the path I was taking and how I've never heard of anything like that before. <sighs> I've heard anything like that before. Uh I, I didn't complete whatever whatever was happening to me because I opened my eyes and I see these four furry feet walking by the, the stall door, and it was a German Shepherd drug dog. <laughs> out. And, and, I, and, I, and I said, uh, I said, hey, man. I said, hey, boy, or whatever. And then the, the uh, law enforcement guy, uh, which is the other side of security police is law enforcement, LE, LE and SPs. He goes, Hey Mario. I said, I said, man, my bag's out there in the day room. He said, Oh, we already checked it. And he said, it's all good. I just want to come check on you. How you doing? You know? And I said, I don't even know. And I didn't relay to him what, you know, I was feeling right then, but I was glad he came in there because I don't know how far that could have taken me, you know, because really I, I honestly felt as if I was leaving my body. And, um, I mean, even my vision changed. Things got super, super light. I mean, bright and light, you know, but that was a really strange thing. But um, so anyway, we, we were there for probably another hour, hour and 15 minutes. And they had they had another uh, armed response team come out, I guess, from Ellsworth. They relieve us because, you know, it has to be staffed no matter what mission one. Right. Yeah. So, you know, you have to have six security police. You can't just send two away. And um, so without replacement. So. Our relief came and uh, we were escorted back to the base. Uh, he rode with the assistant flight chief and I rode with uh, Sergeant, Gray, Master Sergeant Gray back to Ellsworth. And uh, when we got to Ellsworth, we went to the uh, SATAF building, which was our security operations building. And CSC worked out of that building in a hardened facility and directly to Colonel Spraker's office, which he was my, uh, my squadron commander at the time. Uh, base commander was there and, uh, there was a flight chief there of some, of another, of another flight and, uh, from a different area. And, uh, cause it wasn't just my incident that there were other incidents out there too. But, uh, anyway, I guess they wanted a full debrief on, on all that was going on. But anyway, um, OSI was there and, uh, there was also another man in a suit with a, with a a hat. And uh, I didn't. I wasn't introduced to any of these people. I just just the military people I knew. But there was a young OSI trainee there, and uh, named Richard Doty. And he's appeared on several of these shows. And I've been trying to contact Richard Doty because he was in my interview. And not only was yeah. he, in yeah, not only was he in my interview, but he also went to the flight surgeon's office after I arrived there. So medically, he was there. And uh, in the very beginning, he was there just as an observer, I guess. I don't know. But he had an officer that was, you know, over him. And uh, so I've tried emailing him. I've tried texting him. I've tried calling this guy. Everything possible. I tried to go through Linda Moulton Howe. I tried. Everybody that I've come in contact with, I said, I need to speak with Richard Doty. I can't get him anywhere. Wow.
0: That name is infamous in the UFO yeah. world. Yeah. I, uh, that, that really took me by surprise, Mario. I'm, I'm sorry. I Wow. The Somewhere in the Skies podcast is free to listen to every week. But if you would like to help support the show, we have a very active Patreon page where you give what you think the show is worth. In return, you'll get early access to the main show, bonus episodes, and priority to ask our guests your listener questions. Your support truly makes the show continue and grow. So, to learn more and to join, visit patreon.com slash somewhere
2: real noom user compensated to provide their story in four weeks the typical noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week individual results may vary a lot can happen in the next three years like a chatbot maybe may be your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance united healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
1: He was there by God. He's one person that was there. And then there was some other incidents later, which he talked about. Uh, but he knows of my incident in 77, mine and Michael Johnson's. Wow. And I would really like to have that backup because we can't find Michael Johnson anywhere. And there's been substantial monies spent in investigations try, just trying to find him. Now, I thought he said he was from Chicago, Illinois, but uh, uh, we haven't had any luck uh, locating him. No. Or in any in any media you know I mean every platform there is I've, I've gone I've joined them to get it out there even together we served and other friends of mine that may have known him that I served with
0: uh two questions for you Mario before we move on if that's mm-hmm. all right uh I know um so after this debriefing uh which that is quite a room of individuals to be
1: debriefing to uh there were, there were a few more there too
0: okay um my first question for that is. Uh, were you told to be quiet about this? We always hear about that. And my second question, I believe it was unidentified that said that you did speak to Mario or excuse me. You spoke to yourself. You did speak to Michael Johnson one time after the event. Um, Okay. Um, So first question, were you told to be silent about this? And second, what was said between you and Michael after the event? If you don't mind me
1: asking. Well, that's there's a two week span in there and, uh, if I can go from the commander's office when that was finished talking about per se, I had to uh, write a preliminary report on an air on a security police blotter, which you know, back then there was, you know, we didn't have any computers or anything like that. Everything was done by a typewriter. But I hand wrote on this form and it was three pages. And of course it 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 makes three copies. So you, you have to use a number two. Skillcraft craft pins. <laughs> they mandate a number two skill craft pin. Of course you can take apart your M16 with it and everything else, but that's a number two skill craft pin black that I had to use for that report. So it was about three pages. And then, uh, from that point, then I went to the flight surgeon's office and then that examination took about an hour, hour and 50 minutes maybe. And Richard Doty was there for that too, as was the guy in the hat and the suit and, um, couple of other officers and a nurse. There were, I think there were five people there total, but Richard Doty was there for that also. And, um, during the ears, nose, eyes, throat, uh, you know, normal stuff check They didn't take blood from me, which I was, which I was kind of surprised, but uh, I guess there was no reason to, but, um, they did take the, the flight surgeon said, um, he goes, I need to take a couple of skin samples. And that just totally took me by, you know, by surprise. I said, what do you mean skin samples? He said, well, your face is burned on the right side. Well, that made sense because, you know, my beret comes down in a certain way, you know, so. But it makes sense. And then my right back of my right hand was burned where I didn't have a mitten on. So right above my right eye, he uh, he took a skin sample from up here. I think he took more than one, put a small Band-Aid up there and then he took some off the back of my right hand around these knuckle areas right here. And I did not even know I sunburned. Now I felt that the next day and the next couple of days, but of course being from Tampa, Florida, I hadn't been to the beach in a long time. So, you know, when you're living in South Dakota, you just seem to lose that resiliency and you will sunburn. So anyway, um, so they took those skin samples and, um, or he did put them in, put them into two separate vials. And then they released me to go back to the, Commander's office, which I had a further debrief, and then I was told, you know, could not discuss this with anybody. And at the time, I was working at on November One and had been there for several years. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing was they moved me from November One to Kilo One, which was further out to the west toward almost to the Wyoming border. And November was still part of, of that of that uh, uh, configuration, of course. But it was, that was all the 68th area. You had the 68th, 67th, and 66th area all the way down to the Badlands. Um, but anyway, so I worked there with a guy named Mark Wade. But um, he's a good friend of mine. But two weeks later, uh, I'm in an apartment in in uh, Rapid City, is where I lived. And um, Michael Johnson, who I, as I said, I've never known before, he knocked on my door. I didn't. I had no idea. <laughs> And over the door, I said, Michael, I said, man, it's good to see you. Cause I hadn't seen him since that happened and hadn't talked to him. And I think he lived in the barracks on base. And he said, man, I just have to come talk to you about what we saw. And I said, by all means, come on in. So he sat down and right away, the first thing he did, I, I gave him some paper, you know, just a nine by 11 or eight by 11 note sheet. And I said, here's a pencil and a pe- or pencil or you want a pen? I said, you sit here and I'm going to go sit over there in the dining room table. And I said, let's draw what we saw. And we both drew basically the same thing. And he said, he didn't know what happened to him, but whatever it was, it just took him over. You know, he, he didn't say if he saw anyone, he didn't say, or saw a being or anything. He never said that to me, but he said he had never seen anything like that. And he was scared literally to death. And I said, did you hear me talking to you? He said, no. So, you know, that's the way that went, basically. And um, he visited for about an hour and uh, and then he left. And that's the last time I ever saw him or heard from him again. Now, I did have his address where he was from. That's why I came up with Chicago, Illinois. And I thought I'd placed it in my Bible, but I have moved probably several hundred times since 1977 and gone overseas and everything else. And I took my Bible with me. So I don't know where I could have lost it at, you know. But uh, I sure wish I could contact him today because it would, I would feel complete if, uh, you know, right now I just feel as if I'm out here and, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's incredible what happened and there's a lot more to it. Uh, I, don't, I don't even know what else to say, but I, I wish that we were sitting side by side discussing it in front of anybody. Yeah.
0: Right. I know it would give you a clearer picture. And, you know, I know these fractured sort of memories here, you're, you're searching for answers. You're trying to find closure on this mm-hmm. very uh, traumatic event that happened to you.
1: You know, um, going, if I yeah. can just say this, you know, going Thanks. back to, you know, when they, dis- when they discovered us where we were, un- unbeknownst to me, we were on the backside of the Newell Lake Reservoir Dam completely opposite where november five was and when i plotted that on the entire journey on a map from november one november five to to new lake reservoir dam then back to november one it's a pythagorean triangle I mean, it's really amazing it really is mm-hmm. and you're you know you from from november five to where we were was about 11 miles from wow. november november five to new lake reservoir was about 11 miles And then from November, from Old Lake Reservoir to November 1 was about eight miles. And so it was, it's really, really a strange configuration. But what is it with water? And I originally think standing out in that parking lot when I went back with uh, Discovery Plus, knowing what I know now, that craft or that object was over top of that reservoir.
0: Hmm. So we're talking, you know, originally over the nuclear water. installation and then, and then over water. Um, or originally
1: you, saw it over water, then a nuclear, then right. a nuclear site. And then, and then drop me off where the water was. And You're that, so
0: you. right, Mario. I mean, so many of these cases happen over bodies of water. I've got hundreds of them reports in my files and um, wow. my own personal UFO sighting happened over a lake. So I can UFO. definitely relate. Yeah. In many, yeah. many aspects. Um well, Okay. Wow. Um, There's so much to unpack, but I do want to move to the missing time aspect. Now, you're talking 11-mile distance, hours of missing time. Now, we're not talking a couple minutes like some people have claimed. five hours. Five hours. Incredible.
1: Um, Um, We we should have arrived there right around 1 a.m. Okay. Our travel time wasn't but 15 minutes from 12.30, you know, and so – yeah, I, when when Sergeant Garza got to me, the the I just looked to the east and the sun was rising. I mean, it was getting light, and I was like, "Where where am I? What happened?" Let's talk about
0: that. What mm-hmm. happened? Now, many years passed, and I know you really wanted to know what happened in that gap of time. And like many who have had UFO experiences, uh, you know, th- there's different ways to try to retrieve those memories, but a very popular approach is hypnosis. Some people believe in it. Some think it's complete bunk. Um, but this is what you decided to do. I I would love to know what compelled you to finally want to retrieve these memories. and, uh, who was the one to put you under hypnosis? If, 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 unless that's confidential. Um,
1: yeah. Um, yeah, I'd like to ask is, I mean, I'd be happy to give it to you, but I, I, uh, I prefer him tell me that would be okay. He okay, is a, he's right. a mo he's a MUFON investigator and okay. hypnotist okay. and uh, very well known. But um actually Robert Hastings put you know, suggested him. And uh, he came to my home okay and okay. we did this and uh I'd never been hypnotized before, not thinking I even could be, but somehow he <laughs> he uh he got me there and uh it was really a strange experience because some things did come to light that um that I had no idea of and maybe it harbors some of the feelings that I've had ever since then about certain things such as lights uh, in my room or lights that I can see at night. I can't, I can't, I don't know what it is, but if there's some a little led light or some kind of small light coming off of something, I got to cover it. I can't, I don't like any, any small lights at all. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know where that comes from, but yeah, um, <clears throat> yeah it, it uh, i had to deal with a few things uh, things that i saw this is where i really uh, got a good look at uh, what these beings were and how they looked um, and also a couple of areas either in the craft or wherever i was that i was taken to and um, some of the stuff that was done and I, the most uh the i don't say scariest but the most misunderstanding that I have is about being in something, not knowing if I'm clothed or not. And that's a real strange feeling to not know if you got your clothes on or not, but I was in a, like a, like a, a gel of some kind that was black or to my, to me it was black. Maybe it was just cause I was in the dark. I don't know. Um, but it was super thick kind of gelatin that was everywhere. Uh, I, I don't know if I was e- my head was under it or what, but my body was submerged in it. And uh, I just had a feeling of complete uh, aloneness and dread. And I've never experienced that in my life. And uh, it it bothers me about it. It bothers me thinking about that today. The the only other time that happened, I was on top of a mountain in, in Mexico on a motorcycle one time and I was all by myself and I was above the clouds. And all of a sudden, there's, I think there's some kind of phobia about being completely alone with no other human contact. So I probably wouldn't be a good astronaut. <laughs> I'd like to try it, but I don't think I could, but, um, yeah. Yeah. But that, that fear made me think about that because it was, uh, and I felt a lot of pain in my right wrist. Something was being done in my right wrist, but I think the most, uh, rememberable, uh, feeling, Was it, uh, I don't know if I was freaking out. I don't know if I don't really know exactly what my actions were, but one of these beings laid their hand on my shoulder right here. And it it came, I don't know how long the fingers were, but it came, it came down about right here on me. I just felt this hand. that was super light. It was, it didn't feel like a human hand. You know how that feels as I do, but it felt completely different. And, uh, it's. It, I can feel that I can put my hand on there sometimes and I can I swear I, can, I think I can feel it, you know, and I was going away from my vehicle and I was on my back. And I when when the door, was, the door was closed on the passenger side of our vehicle. And I I felt as if I was about four foot in the air, but I, I poked my head up and I see U.S. security. US Air Force on the side of, of our vehicle. And it, these are dark blue vehicles with gold letters on the side of them. And uh, when I did, that's when his hand touched me here and I laid my head back down. And, I, and I, kept, I kept hearing inside of me, not verbally, do not fear, do not fear. And that was, uh, that was something that was said throughout the entire experience. I don't know what else was said, but but I remember that quite well. Do not fear.
0: Well, and, you know, I'm going to be honest, Mario. In the past, I don't know, maybe eight, ten years, um, the idea of hypnosis has been something that I have struggled with when it comes to retrieving memories on these types of experiences. However, uh, I have watched... The available video of your hypnosis session, uh, what 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 has been made available, whether it's in documentary or whatnot. and um, it is clear a by the the person conducting the hypnosis, uh, they were not leading. Uh, they were extremely uh, what's the word uh, caring of the state you were in, which was clearly, uh, traumatic, um, you can tell in the hypnosis, and they weren't leading you at all. And to me, my gut reaction is you were completely genuine in in what you were remembering and feeling. Uh, so that being said, I mean, the fact that these are the memories that came forward of these beings, of these uh, sort of telepathic messages you were given, how do you How do you deal with that? I'm just going to ask straight up, like, how do you wrestle with the notion that within that missing time at this military installation and this event, that this, what we're staring at right now, these images of these beings might have been the cause of all of this. How how do you cope with that every day?
1: It never goes away. I'll tell you that right now. I I, There's no time when I'm not looking up. I, I get up really early for work. Uh, and I, I just watched the skies, and and uh, living right here on the East Coast, you know, you see a few things every now and then, but um, <clears throat> it it just never goes away. Uh, that feeling, my shoulder, <clears throat> the uh, do not fear. Hmm. I mean, I, I literally, I when I stood on November, stood at November five when I was there with uh, Discovery, um, it it broke me completely down, man. I I I, I was. I was under the impression that at any moment all of a sudden they could just materialize right there on top of that site again. And now there's a cattle processing facility built on top of November five. When the government, when they mothballed the whole area, they left the fences up and which is the, the sites were built upward. So no water or anything would collect on them. And uh, so the ranchers used that property because the property was leased, you know, where these missile sites are located for 99 years. And, um, so I guess they gave it to the ranchers at that time, but they, this guy chose to build on top of it. And, um, uh, it, but that I I, could, I have no words for that. It's, uh, there, there's, we just don't, we just can't comprehend that yet. I don't care, you know, what the military's doing or what we may have in crash retrievals or any kind of technology we have the normal, the normal human being, to confront something like this. And I had a weapon on you. I had no intention of, of bearing that weapon. I don't even think I could, I don't even think I could pull a trigger. That's how incapacitated you literally are for your very being, your very survival uh, of what's happening to you because it's completely out of your realm of all possibilities. Something that you, people, we can say, Oh, I'd go right up and I'd knock on the door. Yeah, you'd probably crawl out of your skin and go the other, other way like a jellyfish. Right? I mean, there's just no way around it. You know, the technology gap is just something that we're not even prepared for yet. And uh, but I, 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 uh, I I do wrestle with it quite a bit. And, it, and it, you know, that has been 44 years ago, 43, 44 years ago now. And it never goes away. It's as clear today as it was then when it occurred. I just wish I could find Michael Johnson. You know,
0: yeah, hey, we're gonna keep trying. You know, the more interviews you do, the more (laughs) this gets out there. Hopefully, he, like many others, will feel compelled to come forward. I can't tell you how many military pilots, uh, yeah,
1: ground
0: personnel, intelligence officers Mm -hmm. have come forward to me. You know, just a civilian, uh, to tell their stories after hearing stories like yours or we had uh, Jeremy McGowan or the Tic Tac witness. Oh, yeah, it's it's crazy. Sorry. Go ahead. We
1: had, no, we had, uh, when I first arrived out there, you know, people even say, you know, the other, other security policemen, they say, yeah, a missile feels really strange, you know, cause you have missile sites sitting right outside the Badlands down to our wall, South Dakota. So as I said, again, these sites, you know, are strung from the Badlands at, in Wall all the way up to the Wyoming border. And then the other, other sites take over from that point, you know, and, um, I was told of an incident that happened with uh, two security policemen that were located something like three miles apart. They were missing overnight. Their vehicle was one in one place. Them and their clothing were completely separated. They were sitting in in a field in out on a prairie, completely separate from each other and their weapons and everything else, uh, completely separated from each other and just strewn about. And that's how they were recovered. I don't know what happened to them, but I know they neither of them ever came back. Uh, to the missile field again. So they have a strange, strange thing, you know. And if I may further, when I got that assignment, well, I should back up a little bit. Um, After it was all said and done and a little bit of time passed, I got promoted to an NCO. Uh, I got orders about nine months later, eight and a half, nine months later, to go to Korea, Osan Air Base. And um, I was married at the time. And uh, anyway, um, I went to my, went to my commander, Colonel Sprecker, And I said, uh, Colonel, I said, you know, I'm, I'm married. And um, I said, Is there any way, you know, can I go ahead and volunteer for two years and I could take my wife with me. Who would let me do that? And, uh, and that was, that should have been allowed. That was not asking anything out of place or anything like that. That was a, normal thing. If you received a remote and that was, you could take your spouse with you or your family with you, but you extended for an additional year. Well, I was told I couldn't do that. And um, so I ended up having to go alone, which, which is okay. I had a great time there. It was really good. But just that, it's funny how they just, they can change or they can do whatever it takes to separate two people that have, have, that have been through some experience like this together. And, yeah. and that's what happened with Michael Johnson and can't find him to this day. But it was something else I wanted to tell you too, that, um that is, I'm missing right now, but. uh
0: Oh yeah. No worries. Maybe something <laughs> will strike your memory here. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I've got Mario, two last questions for you personally, and then I've got mm. some listener questions, if that's okay with you. You've been. I know why.
1: I, let me, I just, oh, yeah. when Perfect. I got hypnotized, yeah. You know, talking about, you know, I, I know your beliefs, what you've talking about, how you had problems with some of them and, and not with others, but that put me in AFib. Really? Yeah. And I'd never had any kind of problems whatsoever before, and I've been in it twice since that time. Well, one other time since that time. But I knew for some reason there's a barrier that you have to break. And I, and that's the only way I can describe it. There's something about telling these things and especially under hypnosis, because you're not, you're not completely asleep, but you're not awake either. It's that area in between to where dreams make sense, I guess. Uh, I don't know. That's the way to say it, but I knew divulging or talking about it. It upset me so much internally. I didn't even know at the time, but a week later I was in a cardiologist's office and I was in AFib, but I felt it then because I was just, I couldn't, I wanted to talk and I couldn't talk, wanted to talk and I couldn't talk, wanted to talk, couldn't talk. And then I did talk. And then when I did it, I kind of, I guess I released whatever. And then it, it, it bothered my heart.
0: Wow. Yeah clearly clearly there is something connected to here and yeah. physically um yeah. mm-hmm. that this event just oh man talk about physiological effects uh yeah. it's it's troubling to say the least i i well i hope everything is okay i hope yeah yeah, um, oh, yeah. okay no, um I'm
1: here.
0: well oh man that's pretty heavy um well to kind of i guess wrap up my personal Questions on this event, Mario. Um why? That's always my question for people. Why do you think this event happened? I mean, it, it seemed to start as happenstance, you know, this alarm is set off at the base, uh, and you see this object over the, the the nuclear site, um, and then you have these retrieved memories of what possibly may have happened during the missing time. Uh why what was the motivation? Behind this entire event, if you had to venture a guess I know I know there's never concrete answers with any of this, but I uh, how did think this happened to you
1: I honestly believe that uh, Robert Hastings said it the best he said they didn't contact you, you contacted them, and they followed oh. up on that I see they knew what missile site. They knew that missile site was there, and it was connected to that launch control facility. I thoroughly believe that. So they went out there and set it off, and I dang on sure how to respond to it. And they right. knew I was there. I mean, I just I felt that. And how else can I say it? But I, I sincerely felt that when I put that flashlight over the top of that truck and flashed the same sequence of of, of lights at them, or a, a mag light to that bright object that just, just looked like the sun sitting there. Uh, One thing further, I must add that when I went out there for discovery again, as we were filming, you know, people are curious there and they they ride by, you know, on this dirt road, Ormond Road looked like an interstate that day. There was about 20 of us there doing the filming and um, these two guys showed up and one was on a four wheeler and the other was in a uh, uh, an enclosed kind of four wheeler and they were landowners and one of them his father, I've got, I've got their names. His father was a uh, state trooper at the time when this happened in 77. And he, he came up cause they stayed over when we completed, he stayed over as did the other guy and said, uh, you were the guy that that happened to in 77. I said, yes, sir. And he goes, uh, my father was a state trooper. He said, and I remember the call at two o'clock in the morning to come look for you guys. And I said, what? I mean, this totally blindsided me. And the people that were rich Emberlin that was with me, he was my host and he's really a good guy at this. He, he, he just knows the questions to ask and how to get them out. And, uh, anyway, uh, this fella, I think his name is Earl <laughs> and, uh, not laughing at it. Cause I mean, this, this guy is a rancher of probably 80,000 acres out there or something like that. But, uh, anyway, he said he was quite young and his, uh, and his dad, state trooper, received a call at 2 o'clock in the morning to come look for two security policemen that have gone missing at November 5 missile site on Ormond Road. And, uh, and his reply that he remembered was his father said, well, why are you going to ask me to go look for them? Those guys are equipped way better than I am, which we were. Uh, but he did follow up on that, and he did come out to look for us to no avail. And then the other fellow that was there, he was a deputy sheriff in Sturgis and they sent two patrols. Now all this was on uh, request from central security control back at Ellsworth air force base to send state law enforcement looking for us as well as our own people. So that's another, you know, I had uh, three backup alert teams to locate us, which I, which finally did made contact. And then I didn't know this, but there were three uh, law enforcement teams, you know, two from Sturgis and one state trooper looking for us. Uh, but that, that night, now the state trooper, he said, his dad said he saw something in the air and he didn't say what it was. He said, his dad just said he saw something large in the air, large in the air. So that was completely unknown to me all these years that there was anybody else even looking for us. So a couple of times I've gone on, like there's a Newell, South Dakota, site, you know, for the city. And I've, I've asked if anybody remembers 1977, if, if anything was seen in the month of November, because I don't know the exact day, but I know it was just two weeks before Thanksgiving. That's why I know it was November in November. And, um, but I hadn't really got any replies back. I got several people watch watched the programs and said, wow, you know, I've heard of this out here, but never, never knew it. But anyway, I just found that to be uh, really kind of cool that yeah. these guys came forward. So we do, we do have their names. So I don't know if we ever going to go back out there and then maybe do a round table or something like that with them. But I would sure like to, I'd like to find out, you know, what they knew or what they were told because what eludes us is back during all this time is that being an airman or an NCO, you know, you're not like the guys that were underground in a launch control facility, which are watching, you know, the alarm panels, You know, you're 70 feet under the ground. We're the guys that are actually out there responding to what you sent us to based on the alarm at that facility. So, you know, we don't have the same, I should say, the uh, we don't get the same recognition or the follow-up of paperwork that you can gather from individuals who saw any of this because they get it all. I got nothing, nothing anything back, nothing. My medical records don't show anything. I mean, it's just amazing to how little and how much they can literally do away with if they so want to. And, and, you know, I'm not a conspiracy theorist or anything, but in this instance, you know, I really see how my buddy was shipped off somewhere else, never saw him again. I get sent to a base. I'm not allowed to take the two-year option, you know, completely separated from everything that I know and care for, gone. And that's the way they do you. And, um, and, and you got to stay quiet if you want to keep a clearance, you, you come forward in any of this. And during this time in 77, Linda Molden Howe was working for that, uh, 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 channel in Denver, Colorado, and she was investigating cattle mutilations at which my partner and I, Mike Wade, Mark Wade and I, we saw two and my vet in Rapid City said he had been to one and did an examination and couldn't believe it. And we just started talking about it one day in Rapid City. So something's going on out there, but yet so much of it is hushed up. Now these officers, you know, they have a paper trail because when you shut down a missile site or the other thing is they're not always shut down either. We were dispatched several times, not just in November, but other facilities, echo Oscar hotel, other sites that we, I worked at to where a a site would just arbitrarily start a sequence to launch. So, the procedure there was to drive your F-154 truck out there with your partner, put it up on top of the blast door facing the same direction as the as the cow trail or the or the cattle rails where it's gonna blow off, put it in neutral and get off the site by one mile. And if it launches, the hopes are the blast door blows out from underneath it, the vehicle falls down on the rocket, and it upsets a gyro and it just goes off and crashes. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's so it's not always a sequence of events, it's going to launch, not always that. Right. Just shut down. Sometimes it sequences to launch also, and then it stopped some way or somehow. External which, it stopped.
0: Yeah, which is so much more alarming
1: when you. Yeah, so they're, they're literally playing, they're, they're playing with us, you know. And yeah. the whole thing, I got asked a question by somebody on Netflix here just a few weeks ago. What did I think? What were they looking for? Why do they come to these missile sites? You know, you know what Nikola Tesla did with electricity, we're just coming to grips with today. There's a lot more about electricity that we don't know, especially on the big generator we're sitting on right now under our feet, all of us. There are certain ways, I guess, that you can split an atom. and Maybe there's more ways than what we know of or have ever learned. And I think they perhaps sequence or see our abilities to do that, even though even though it's weaponized. There are other ways that they're waiting for us or either monitoring us that we don't find different ways to split the atom or new elements to add with it or whatever. I don't want to be incorrect speaking about it, but that's what I feel.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, we're, we're getting closer to, uh, you know, nuclear fusion. Yeah. I think it was just a few weeks ago that they discovered that they're able to Finally do it. Very, very small amounts, but we're getting there. So, you know, while these things, these ideas of free energy are hopefully going to benefit mankind, Mm -hmm. there's always the antithesis of that as well. And, um, you know, again, like these nuclear sites, what you were doing out there is a necessary line of defense, but can easily be flipped (laughs) on the offense as well. Uh, Yes, you can. So it's, it's troubling when these, when these instances, these incidents, I should say, are happening, um, at a rapid pace all over. I mean, we just had, um, and this is kind of my last question for you, Mario, um, before these couple listener questions. Um, Robert Salas, another gentleman who worked at Mm -hmm. a nuclear site, had a now famous incident occur, um, just announced, yes, at Maelstrom. Yes. Um, is going to be speaking to Arrow this new office within the Department of Defense. He's going to be giving testimony about his event that took place, which he's been waiting for for decades, for someone to come to him and be like, what happened? And, you know, recently at these congressional hearings on UFOs, congresspeople asked the head of the UFO office, this new office, have you ever heard of the Maelstrom UFO event? And they had absolutely no idea what he was talking about, (laughs) which was... Just, you know, that dumbfounded me and many people out there. But now, look, they're taking a proactive stance. They've reached out to Robert Sellers. They're going to talk to him. So my question for you is, if given this opportunity, would you talk about your event in front of Congress or even testify with Arrow, this new UFO office in the, the Pentagon? If given that opportunity, um, yeah, would you take it? And what would you tell them?
1: Uh, yeah, I'm one of the eight that was asked to do that.
0: Really? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. So,
1: yeah. I I uh I'm looking forward to it. And I'll answer anything, anything they ask, anything that I, to the best of my ability.
0: Wow, that's exciting. I did not know that uh mm-hmm. they reached out to you, so that's gonna mm-hmm. be happening. Yes. Okay. I don't know
1: exactly the date, but I mean I guess it's uh when they want to contact you. Yeah, <laughs>
0: you're on their <laughs> schedule, right? <laughs> Um well that's very exciting. I I did not know that. Um it's good to hear they're finally reaching out to to folks like you who have had these incidents and were told to keep quiet about them. I mean there's even new language in the National Defense Authorization sure. Act saying if you have had an experience yes. come forward, you know there's no repercussion. We know you had Q clearances, we know you were told to be silent, but we want to know what happened. So uh, oh man, I am wishing you all the best with that. I, I hope something, you. and maybe you'll even get some answers, you know?
1: I hope so. I, I don't know. They're pretty stingy about that. They want to know, but they don't want to give,
0: yeah. you know, <laughs> so I, that's I about right. this,
1: yeah. you know, in 50 years, you know, all this will go away because whatever's that whoever's out there, they'll make themselves known when they feel it, you know, or if they come from our planet within, however, it all works. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, in, but, They'll. We will know about them then. It'll be completely different. So, but, can't yeah, agree
0: more. Yeah, I we're am. on their timetable.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: Um. Awesome. Well, I've got just a couple listener questions. If you're willing mm-hmm. to stick around yeah. for these,
1: sure, sure.
0: Great, great. Thanks, Mario. Um. Well, Casey on Twitter asks, "Does Mario believe the government has any further or previous information on your incident? Do you do yes. you think?" Someone truly knows what happened there? Or oh, at least yeah.
1: It's fully written and documented. I okay. thoroughly believe that. And what I meant earlier by saying, you know, officers are different than NCOs or airmen mm-hmm. is that uh for some reason they're more privy to documentation to be able to set up a line of of not progression, but a a line of um informative information that they can get or gather or can get from their partners and so forth. Whereas we simply submitted our information or underwent an interrogation, really an interrogation mm-hmm. and then told never to speak of it again and sign an indie and non-disclosure agreement, you know, or something similar to, to do that. Because I mean, you know, when they threaten you, you know, we, we, you know, we can take your rank away. You can't divulge these secrets. You can't, Talk about it, you know. Nobody in your family can know about this. It, it, it's really quite scary. I mean, it really is. I mean, it, you know, especially if you're a young airman, young NCO, and you've got a family, and you're saying, "Well, what's my livelihood if I leave this?" You know, I'll be. You can't. You can't discuss it. You can't do anything about it. And it's very hard to gather. They've worked, and that's that's been something that's really really bothered me. I mean from the very beginning of being able to run these people down and say, can you write me something? Can you do this? Well, they don't do that.
0: Right. right. I, I get it. Yeah. That's even, not- as, you
1: know, even DOE, when I, when I first went to work for DOE in 83, um, well, I guess it was 84 because it took eight months from my clearance. Now I had never had any, any infraction whatsoever in with law enforcement or anything like that ever still don't. Um, but it still took eight months for my clearance. And I sat in front of a board three times. They didn't specifically say this, but whatever happened to you in the Air Force when this this took place or that took place? Because, I mean, they, they literally, if I would started talking about it, then I would have divulged something through DOE I shouldn't have. Because I was still still under, under that oath, you know, as, as compared to what Department of Energy does, even though I was a subcontractor. Still, you can't – to keep your clearance, you you just couldn't talk about that. Because, I mean, I've been to Los Alamos, Sandia, Oak Ridge. uh, I've I've been to quite a few places. I saw one of those cold fusion tests in um, 80 – no, 87, I think. Oh, wow. wow. 87, 88. Yeah, I was at S4 there in Los Alamos, the Advanced Nuclear Research Center, and saw a maricenium, well, said element 114, 115. Burst in Akiva, unbelievable. Yep. Oof. Yeah, we
0: could go down a long road with Bob Lazar yeah. and Area 51, yeah. but we'll save that for our next. Yeah, year. love
1: to. Sure, Mario.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, well, this question came in actually. This was a super chat by our good friend James Craig. Thank you so much, James, for the super chat here. He asks, "Does Mario think the nature of this event was nuts and bolts, atmospheric phenomenon, or paranormal psychological?" Uh yeah, what do you make of the hmm. the whole event? Do you believe all of this physically happened to you in the reality as we know it, Mario, yeah. or um yes. yeah, H- however you want to dissect that question.
1: Yeah, just like you're going to the store and on the way to the store something happens. Hmm. And then all of a sudden you're not at the store, you're somewhere you didn't even intend on being and then it, you you just got to come to grips with what's left.
0: Yeah. That's a, that's a good way to put it. I, I, I couldn't put it better myself. Um, here's one Christopher on Facebook asks, did you have any synchronicities occur before or after this event? I mean, there's a couple you brought up. I mean, just there knowing you went back to the site for the TV show and you found people who had actually responded to your emergency call to come look for you guys. That's a synchronicity if I've ever heard one, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Anything else really
1: yeah. stick yeah. out to you? Um, the, uh, I became so interested uh, in pyramids and archaeology that I can't even describe that. Anything the pyramid structure, I had to find out about it. It's measurements. It's, it's mathematical designs. I don't, I don't know why. And I don't know how that happens, but, um, uh, I, I went to, uh, the movie, um, close encounters of third kind with my wife, mm-hmm. excuse me. And, uh, that part where we Neary's near, he's sitting in front of the mailboxes with a flashlight in his mouth. And the object is comes. Uh, I guess stops directly above his vehicle and shines a light down and, and it illuminates the whole thing. And it, That whole scene, when I saw that, I I literally got up and had to leave the theater. I couldn't take it. I mean, that had just happened (laughs) to me, (laughs) literally had just happened. Almost the same thing, but I was with a partner uh, and armed. And uh, yeah, so I'd say those synchronicities, you know, are, are one is pyramids. I don't know what it is even today, but. Really, I'm just kind of like a uh, an amateur archaeologist, but I have learned so much about these structures, and they weren't—they're not what we've been told they are. And um, I, I don't know what else to say about that, but yeah, there are definite things that have, that influenced my mind in a in a certain way. But uh, these these pyramid structures have have really changed me in a lot of ways. Just learning about them. Mm. Interesting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, that's a whole, a whole Mm -hmm. Avenue you can go down. Um, uh, last listener question here for you, Mario, Steven on Twitter asks, have you had any other encounters or communications with whatever you think you encountered that night? If so, how, and what?
1: No, other than dreams, uh, I keep a dream log, but, uh, I dream in color. I can smell in my dreams and, uh, uh, I I've, I've had uh, some very strange and, and 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 sometimes unnerving dreams. They're not nightmares. I mean where it makes me wake up it's just uh, just something that I see and I don't quite understand but uh, I guess dreams mean something. I don't know what, but uh, yeah I, 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 as far I guess dreams would be the right answer for that, just really really. Unbelievable yeah. dreams.
0: Interesting. Hey, you know, and a lot of this people believe happens in the the realm of the subconscious as well. So subconscious, mm-hmm. excuse me. So, uh, yeah, who knows? It could be another way for them to communicate, even.
1: I, I, um, I will I will expound on one thing in uh, twenty if I can. On in yeah, twenty seventeen, is in December. Uh, I think it was December nineteenth or something like that in twenty seventeen. Uh I, I worked shift worker at the time and I was I have a back room back here that I keep so uh anyway I can I can sleep there and not in not not inter- interfere or bother anybody else in the house. But um anyway it was about uh ten after four. I wake up at these certain times, uh one eleven, three thirteen, four ten, four eleven. Just really I try to keep a little running tab on that, but anyway I uh I woke up at uh, 10 after four on this morning with all these alarms going off, but I didn't just wake up and sit up in my bed. I uh, opened my eyes and I was standing next to the foot of my bed. And I was looking at the uh, North wall in this bedroom. And there was a big black hole in the middle of that, in that wall about six or seven feet in diameter. And as I woke up to it, of course, it was gone. So I don't know if I was dreaming it or what happened, but all of a sudden I hear all these alarms going off and it was in my home and it was uh, low voltage alarms, like with your stove, your oven, your refrigerator. I didn't know microwaves got one, anything uh, that's electronic has a low voltage alarm. And I didn't even, I didn't even know those existed and the lights were flickering and they were, my son was home and he, and he gets up and he goes, dad, what's going on? I, and I was in kind of shock. I I said, I don't, I don't know, son. What's happening? I said, the lights won't work. I mean, they were working, but they were extremely low, just like they were being powered by a six-fold battery or something. And uh I said, the only thing I knew to do, I said, Well, I'll just have to wait eight o'clock this morning. I'll call George Power. So I just went back to bed and thought how strange all that was, and I don't know what that hole was in my wall. And uh so I wake up, my son's already up, and he goes, Dad, he said, Georgia Power's out here. And I said, what? He said, yeah, Georgia Power's out here. And I said, you're kidding me. I said, I didn't even call him. So I threw on some clothes real quick, and out the door I went, and I went out in my front yard, and I live on a little, little bit more than an acre here, and they were out next to the street. And uh, I introduced myself, and, and the supervisor, he goes, is your home? I said, yes, sir. He goes, well, we can't figure out what happened. I said, what do you mean, Kim? I said, I, I said, he goes, hey, you lost, you lost a leg of power to your house. And I didn't really know what that meant. And I said, well, how many of the, I said, the whole neighborhood go out. He goes, oh, no, just you. And I said, what? And uh, he said, yeah. He says, it lit up our board downtown as a power surge. And then nothing. And then we see you lost a leg. I said, "What? what does that even mean? You know, and um, so he goes, come on, I'll show you. So he takes me to where the meter is and and outside of my garage on a little deck there. And they had this uh, this battery type transformer thing set up on a on a cart and they had it plugged, had it wired into my uh, to my meter. So I could have three legs of power, you know, restoring power to the house fully. And he goes, yeah, we'll come out here and put a new line in next week or so. It took a bit longer than that. But I got pictures and so forth of it. And I said, well, what makes this happen? He says, we don't know. He says, it's a strange thing. It's never happened here before. And I said, yeah, I can't. I don't know either. And and, uh, anyway, I went on about my business and didn't think much more about it. And then about uh, two weeks later, I was out in my front yard. I think I was cutting the grass. And one of the boys from up the street He came by and goes, Hey, Mr. Woods, how you doing? And I pulled off my respirator and I say, Hey man, I'm all right. How about you? And uh, he goes, what was, he goes, what was that light in your backyard a few weeks ago, Mr. Woods? I said, what are you talking about? He goes, well, I left for work at four o'clock in the morning. He said it was lit up like it was a sun in your backyard. And I said, what? I said, there's two, there's two outdoor lights above the, the roof line uh, in that room. And that's, that's all there are just, there's two uh, lights floodlights and he goes oh no he goes it looked like it looked like uh, a stadium back there and I because I live I've got 200 trees in the backyard he goes and it looked like a stadium in your backyard and I said you got to be kidding me I said I said come on man I said you got to be joking he says no I'm serious and that's all we really said about it and um it made me wonder the entire you know other than that and um but anyway, we lost a leg of power to the house, and it's highly unusual. And then that happened, and then he came by and said that. And the guy George Power said, "This never happens. We don't even know how it happened here." So, anyway, that was in 2017, and I let Robert Hastings know about that immediately. You know, I mean, I, I don't know. You, you just never know. These these uh, these beings can once they they can identify you. They know everybody. I I think there's nobody they can get away from them. Not really, uh, but but they monitor, you know?
0: Yeah. Right. And, you know, again, it's like when you have that kind of what a lot of people call the initiation experience, which, you know, I know you had a sighting as a child as well, but a lot of the time, once a lot of the times, once you have these encounters, you know, it does open a door and invites a lot more weirdness into now, your life what it's, kind of door is
1: that is it yeah really? what what is that uh, there's a lot of people that haven't seen anything ever so yeah. i totally understand the questioning you know and I, I i don't know how else to address that other than that well perhaps you will when it's your time you're supposed to see it i guess <laughs> you know
0: until it's
1: you yes
0: absolutely <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Mario, you've been very generous with your time. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to let you go here in just a moment, but you know, again, a lot of people I'm sure are going to feel empowered after hearing you tell this story, Mm -hmm. especially military personnel to come forward. So my last question for you, of course, is there anywhere people can reach out to you if they'd like? Uh, Would you like them to do Uh it through me or is there some sort of Email um if there's anything you're willing
1: to share. Usually, you know, you can it, uh, you can you can email me. It's mwoods175 at gmail.com. Okay. And I don't I'll answer it if I can and you know I try to get to everybody, you know, best I can. Uh sometimes there's too many, but uh that, I still I still try to answer them, you know. And a lot of people comment on the YouTube portion. I don't know about all this yet on all these platforms, and I guess I should do better than what I'm doing. And, and maybe I could use your help or I wish I knew somebody that would sit down and help me because I honestly don't know at all. You know, I mean, <laughs> I, I, gotcha, I, man. I go on YouTube, I subscribe to your channel and, you know, I don't know how else, how I can do that on my own. I don't know if I want to, but um, you know, any comments they, that they put a place on, you know, after this interview, I'll be happy to answer uh, in any way, the best of my ability. So just throw that out there or they can email me You know, I don't mind that a bit.
0: Great. Thank you. And I'll go ahead yeah. and put your email address sure. in the show notes here as well. Yeah. And I'd be more than happy to help you out to get in. Yeah, that'd be great. You do I've got, got right.
1: the equipment, you know, pretty yeah. much, you know, I don't have a lot of it. I got, I got good enough stuff, you know, <laughs>
0: absolutely. We're working off the same cameras as we talked about yeah. Yeah. there. Um, well, Mario, this is, thank you. Thank you for sharing oh. this. Thank you for your service. Um, I know, your search for answers only just begun, but I -hmm. think it's very telling that you're going to be speaking in front of the Pentagon UFO office, hopefully soon about your event. And maybe that'll put one more puzzle piece into place. So, um, I'm going to wish you the best with that. And, um, I'm going to let you go here and debrief with our audience for just a little bit. Sure. Uh, so yeah, that's, I'll, I'll say goodnight here. And once again, thank you so much for joining me on somewhere in the skies.
1: Anytime, Ryan. Thank you very much for having me again.
0: My absolute pleasure. All right. Welcome. Have a great
1: night. All right. See you a little later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: And there it is guys. I have been waiting a long time to have this conversation. So I truly do have to thank Mario for giving us his time again, I will put his email address in the show notes for you guys. If you want to reach out to him and, uh, the, the conversations only just begun. I can't wait to have him back on to hear how his talk with Arrow goes. Uh, that's incredible. And again, if you are a military, former military or active and you want to come forward with the UFO event, I'm here. Mario's here, uh, just to hear you out. Uh, sometimes that's all. All a lot of people need is to just get this stuff off their chest. And, and I know, uh, Mario's, uh, I commend him for doing this, uh, for, you know, risking everything to come forward and tell a story because it's not easy. Uh, but it's just going to empower more people to do so. So my special thanks to him as well. And, uh, yeah, just wanted to give you guys a little preview of next week's show here. Next week, we will be celebrating our 300th episode of Somewhere in the Skies. I never thought I would see the day, but it's here. We've made it to episode 300. Uh, so a huge thank you to all of you who've been there from the beginning, who kind of hopped in along the way. It's been an incredible journey. And um, I'm going to have two of my good friends from The Debrief joining me, Mr. Micah Hanks and Christopher Plain. And they're going to be t- coming on the show to talk all about uh, their favorite UFO stories from 2022 and what's to come this year in 2023 when it comes to ufos uh space exploration technology science you name it we're going to talk about it it's definitely going to be an exciting year for this topic and for many others as well so be on the lookout for that next week live here on youtube and then on the podcast as well and as always keep your feet on the ground but never stop searching somewhere in the skies
2: Somewhere in the Skies is produced by Third Kind Productions in association with the Entertainment One Podcast Network. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things.